Are you ready to take your leadership in your organization to the next level and beyond? Your competitors will be there before you know it. Today's leaders must perpetually innovate their leadership approach, evolve their organizations, and grow faster than the competition. Welcome to Innovating Leadership, co-creating our future with Maureen Metcalf. In the next hour, you'll meet innovative leaders who have become successful at the helm of some of the most respected organizations in the world, and you can become the next big success story. Now, here is your host, Maureen Metcalf. Hi, welcome to Innovating Leadership, co-creating our future. My name is Maureen Metcalf. I'm your host and the founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute. I work with leaders and their organizations to identify the trends that will most likely disrupt their business and develop business strategies and business and leadership practices to leverage those trends to create strategic advantage and also create a better future for all of our stakeholders. I'm a regular contributor to Forbes and the lead author on an award-winning book series focusing on innovating how we lead and transforming your organizations. I'm also an adjunct faculty member at universities in the U.S. and Germany. I am delighted that today our host is Cheryl Heller. She's an American business strategist and designer. She's the founding chair of the first Master of Fine Arts program in design and social innovation at the School for Visual Arts in New York City founder of the Design Lab CommonWise and winner of the AIGA medal for her contribution to the field of design. She's a Rockefeller Bellagio Fellow. She is also the author of a recent book, The Intergalactic Design Guide, Harnessing the Creative Potential of Social Design. Sorry, that's a mouthful. (laughs) So (laughs) um, I am delighted to have Cheryl joining us. For those of you who may be new to the program, my intent in starting this program was to help leaders stay current. So if you have, say, an MBA in leadership and you got that more than a few years ago, the challenge for most of us is how do we stay current as leaders when we're working incredibly busy lives? And so creating this show was an opportunity to give you access to what I think is the most current and relevant thinking impacting leaders. And so my hope is that you hear something from Cheryl that changes your mindset and changes what you do as a leader on a regular basis. So Cheryl is going to talk about her book. Um, She is a business strategist and designer, and she presents a system of putting social design into action to solve seemingly intractable problems facing businesses, governments, foundations, and social organizations. Um, And unlike traditional design approaches aimed at developing new products and services, social design guides people to put their creative abilities to work in solving problems. It runs counter to the conventional wisdom that our future is best left in the hands of experts who believe they have all the answers in advance. In complex social systems navigating in uncertainty and chaos, plans don't work, only networked innovation and experimentation does. And in my work, I talk a lot about leaders needing to take the mind of the scientist. So what Cheryl's going to present, I am really excited about, and I think is very well aligned with what you've been hearing on the show over up to the last 200 episodes. So Cheryl, I'm delighted that you're joining us. Please share a little bit more about your background if you want, and then let's jump into what is social design. Sure. 
Well, maybe I should start with the title of the book, which, as you said, is a mouthful. And in explaining how that came to be, I'll be able to weave in a little bit about my background. That quote came from a wonderful environmental writer named David Orr, who was a teacher at Oberlin uh, for many years and has written a series of wonderful books. And about 15 years ago, a friend of mine gave me a stack of books to read <clears throat> that were all about sustainability and um, natural systems. And and Orr was among them. And in a book called Earth in Mind, uh, he had a quote that said that as Homo sapiens entry into any intergalactic design competition, our industrial civilization would be tossed out at the qualifying round. And I read that and thought, huh, I'm a designer, and that seems kind of unfair to lay the whole thing on the feet of designers. Uh, But then as I started to look around at the products of what we create at the buildings, and Orr wasn't saying, hey, you know, education is broken or government is broken or healthcare is broken. He was saying, no, the whole thing, right, this whole this whole um, enterprise, the big enterprise that we're so proud of, is not sustainable. And it was an inspiration for me. And um, when it came time to write a book, which was uh, after I had migrated from my work in the corporate world to trying to find purpose, trying to work with organizations and with people who were looking for new ways to work and live, who were leaders of change, I decided to name my book after uh, that quote from David Orr. What a fabulous background. So so can you now define for us a little bit more about what is social design? Sure. The, the process that we use to design cars or design houses or design the next handheld device, whatever that is. It's a process for imagining something that doesn't exist yet and bringing that into existence. It, it includes experimenting and prototyping and, and ideating lots of different ways to think about it. So if you imagine that process of making the things we all know, extract that process from the things that are made, that, that, same way of approaching creating things can apply to new systems of education, new societies, new ways to think about a city. And so social design is that design process, but it's applied to the big issues of our time. It's applied to finding solutions to poverty and to injustice and to broken food systems. But that's the easiest way to think about it. And unlike product design or unlike traditional design in social design we're not looking for the silver bullet we're not looking for the next killer product whether that's a sneaker or an iphone we're looking for a way to create the conditions within a group of people to to innovate again and again so it puts that agency and it puts that that new kind of leadership 
in the hands and in the hearts of of the people who participate in it. So when you have a creative culture, for example, if you're leading a creative culture, it means that they're more likely to innovate again and again. And if you have a culture of people who have a sense of possibility and who know how to develop new ideas, then they're likely to do that repeatedly. That It sounds incredibly empowering. We talk about in our work that innovation now is not a point in time and a thing you do and then you're done but that we need to continually evolve or create an evolutionary machine so it sounds like we are aligned in in the capabilities that you're giving teams and groups absolutely very true and you know we also say if if you've got a problem that can be handled by a bunch of guys in a lab you don't need design um, go do that. But but mm-hmm. whenever there's anything where human agency determines the success or failure of what you're doing, then you need social design. And that's exactly the, the condition that, that you're talking about, right? That's not a point in time because all of the people, all of the, the different kinds of voices and minds coming together today change constantly. And, and you don't ever find an answer that lasts. So we won't lose the need for guys in labs, but bringing in then this idea of social design to solve some of our more intractable cross-sector problems really seems foundational. Exactly. And um, there's an amazing organization that I work with that has found a way to get to zero chronic and veterans homelessness in the country. And they use a great example. They talk about the difference between technical problems and complicated, complex problems. Technical problem is baking a wedding cake, right? And even sending a rocket to the moon is a technical problem. It's logical. You can figure it out no matter how complicated it is. Complex problems, uh, their examples are raising a kid, um, or ending climate change or, you know, um, ending poverty or any of the other big social issues. Those are complex problems. And those are the kinds of problems that require people to behave differently, which I think is also what you're talking about. So you don't, you don't have, um, there isn't a single answer. Absolutely. So can you tell us more about the how can social design help solve problems facing these multi-sector problems that can only be solved by a multi-sector collaboration? Sure. There are some steps that are common to anything you want to address. And it requires being very clear about what it is you want to create. And social design takes place in collaboration, right? It's social. It's not somebody going away and coming back and saying, I'm a genius and I've figured this out. It takes place in real time. And the more diverse the people involved in it, the more likely it is to succeed. And and there are a couple of reasons for that. One, you want people to be involved who need to make it happen. And two, like in nature, it's the diversity of ways of seeing things and ways of approaching things that actually gives us the material for better ideas. So the definition of a vision is hugely important. And it sounds like that's what you always do, right? I mean, I can imagine people saying, well, yeah, of course, you figure out what you want to do before you want to do it. But when you start to look for that, it's 
it's surprising how often people seem to leave that part out. And there's an art to defining a vision in a way that isn't so general or filled with such platitudes that you'll never know when you get there, right? We say Uh the vision needs to be concrete enough to act on and specific enough so that you recognize it when you get there. It makes perfect sense as I work with organizations when we use the word vision so often we don't have agreement about what that simple word means. And then get to what, what, what is the vision, right? Because everybody yeah. has a different picture in their head. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, design also brings these tools for visualizing, right? One of the, another important step in the process is mapping. You, we talk about scoping a problem and mapping the stakeholders or mapping the current reality or, or mapping the systems involved. And, when you use those tools and everyone can see the same thing, it's a it's a it's a a tool for bringing people together so that they can talk about what's really going on or what people really want to to create. So I've heard two steps. There's a visualize or vision, and then is mapping the second step? Yes, and uh, mapping is. Um, it's a, it's a, it goes along with the step of doing research. So you've probably heard about human-centered research. Human-centered research came from user-centric research, which was um, developed in the, the early days of technology when fig- people figured out that you had to actually talk to a person and see how they used um, see how they used an interface in order to make it successful. And design and lots of people, especially in healthcare, now talk about human-centered design. The research that we do puts the person that we're trying to affect or the people that we're trying to affect or the organization in the middle. And so they become the inspiration for whatever you're trying to create. I have a very dear friend uh, whose name is Paul Polak who has been working in development and has probably brought 20 million people out of poverty. And he's spent years in various countries. He says he's interviewed 3,000 poor people, and he always asks them why they're poor. And they always know. Uh, And if you then take a very practical approach to addressing their needs, you end up helping them earn their way out of poverty. It's amazing. It sounds simple, and it's shocking. I would imagine how how often that is not the process. Right, because we're sort of taught to want to be the expert, to have an answer before the question is even fully out of somebody's mouth, to be the smartest person in the room, to be the person who will do a five-year plan and create an illusion that we actually control these things that, that aren't controllable anymore. And so everything we're taught goes against this open um, sort of inquiry-based learning about other people uh, and and um, sort of predicates uh, against the the kind of openness and collaboration that it takes to think of really new solutions. I like the term inquiry-based approach. It again, seems intuitively obvious, but it's not built into what we typically do. Precisely. Right, we're 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 and and think about education, right? Think about all the children who are taught to get the answers right, 
They're not taught to be curious. They're not taught not to know. And that's how we become lifelong learners, by being curious and, and always asking questions. How do you teach that? Well, it's really interesting because we're now in the, we're going into the eighth year of the graduate program that I founded. And people ask me how the program has changed. And and there are parts of the program that we evolve. You know, I'm always looking for new classes and new faculty. But most of the changes in the program have come from observing the way people learn and how they take in information and how difficult it is for people to develop real critical thinking, how hard that is given the way people are educated. And it doesn't matter what country students come from. Uh, the, The challenge in Getting people to question and to analyze things is is a really difficult one. Our program, and, and I find this with clients or with students, people learn these things by experiencing them. It comes from muscle memory, right? You don't hear somebody talk about it and, and then understand it. It has to be learned by doing. And so the the best way to give people a sense of this is to try something, to try a prototype. If it's in a company, um, you know, take a project and and look at how to use this different approach. Uh, And it's inevitable. Everyone who uses this approach will say, I tried a little experiment and people fell in love with this participatory process and the fact that they got to develop ideas and, and they want more and they keep then finding other ways to apply it. And that works within a corporate culture as well. Wonderful. Thank you. So we're going to go on break now. And for our listeners, it would be interesting over break to reflect on how curious are you and how comfortable are you with the learning through doing versus I go away, figure it out, and come back looking like I knew what I was doing. So the willingness to be vulnerable. So we'll be right back after break. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. The Innovative Leadership Institute is your trusted partner to create perpetual innovation and evolution in your leadership and organization. Are you ready to innovate and evolve? Since its inception, the Innovative Leadership Institute has been dedicated to helping leaders evolve their leadership mindset and skills and create organizations that can continually innovate to achieve results in a highly competitive and rapidly changing environment. We help leaders, management teams, and organizations identify and create the capacity to update how they lead, identify, and implement transformative solutions necessary to meet their mission and create strategic advantage. The Innovative Leadership Institute offers proven results backed by leading-edge research and a global network of accomplished consultants and thought leaders. Visit InnovativeLeadershipInstitute.com. Maureen and her associates are ready to discuss your needs and tailor a solution to meet your goals. Move forward with the Innovative Leadership Institute. Visit InnovativeLeadershipInstitute.com today. 
We hear it and read about it every day in the news. America is heading over a fiscal cliff. Home prices are still receding and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Innovative Leadership, co-creating our future. To reach Maureen Metcalf or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to info at InnovativeLeadershipInstitute.com. Now, back to this week's program. Welcome back. We're talking to Cheryl Heller and Maureen Metcalf about the Intergalactic Design Guide. So, show you were talking about the social design process. Can you um, carry us forward in looking at the steps? Of course. The, there's another aspect of social design that's quite different from what we're accustomed to, and it has to do with the way ideas are developed. Typically, in any innovation process, there's a sequence of, I do research, I look at the objectives, I test, I prototype, I implement, I scale. And, and they're, they're done one after another. They're often done in big organizations or with big projects by different teams, even sometimes with different leaders. In the social design process, those steps are collapsed. And you look for a team, you bring a team together that represents all of those capabilities and the making the research and the prototyping and the the refining happens all in one stage. We call it making to learn. And even if what you're prototyping is a new way for people to under interact, you prototype, you try it, right? You have a conversation with someone or you, you give them a tool to react to. Uh, and in doing that, that becomes your research because you're seeing how, if it makes sense to people, how they respond to it, whether they, whether it works for them and whatever you're trying to do. And at the same time, you're thinking about how to continually refine that. And so those sequential steps are, are collapsed into one stage. Everyone involved is able to see all of those stages and it inspires different kinds of thinking because you, you are able to see energy, you know, about an issue or, or in a place that wasn't anticipated and, and move on that. Typically, when we have the sequential steps and you have a very tight long-term plan and stage gates, 
what gets measured is where you are in relation to that plan. And, and you can miss serendipitous opportunities to improve the product, to take a left turn, to, um, you know, to do something that is unexpected. And so this, this process of making to learn is, again, uncomfortable if you are a person that needs structure and long-term plans and wants to do things, you know, a, a, a bit at a time in silos. But for the, as I said, the serendipity of real innovation and response and de-risking what can be expensive components or sequences, it's really an exciting way to work. It sounds exciting. And also um, for people focused on traditional risk management seems um, concerning, how, so, how do, tell me, have, tell me, tell me what you mean. How do you mean? Um, if I have gates and stages and and numbers of hours to be worked until I know I have a thing to deliver, even if it's an interim thing, then I can track progress and make sure that the investment of X dollars or millions of dollars will be on track and will, in theory, deliver what we say we're going to do. And I realize the in theory is the gotcha. Um, how do we for companies that are investing large amounts of money, companies or, or cross sector, how do we help them be confident that the results they're going to get are relatively in line with the investment they think they're making? Sure. A couple of things. What is being prototyped, the prototypes are happening long before a lot of money gets spent. We have three stages of prototypes. There's a very low-res prototype where it can be as simple as a conversation or, you know, some some very simple, uh, simple tools to experiment with. And then uh, that's when you start understanding the big shifts in what you're thinking about based on consumer feedback. So you've got real-time feedback loops long before you invest a lot in whatever the, the object or the, the subject is. There's a very interesting report. I don't know if you <clears throat> have been watching IBM, but for the last 10 years, they've been shifting their culture from an engineering-based culture to a design-led culture. And Forrester did a study because obviously there was a question about the financial return on this shift. And the Forrester report is available on IBM's website, but they found faster to market, more innovation, fewer faults before it got to market, and other sort of unmeasurable aspects of more engaged people, more engaged teams, um, and other cultural effects. So there's evidence that this is actually, it's, it's you know, people talk about failing fast. Mm-hmm. I don't like to use the word failing because it's really all learning. It's prototype and information. Mm-hmm. And you, you, you just, you, you spend a little bit more time in the beginning with Putting, putting ideas in front of customers or stakeholders so that they can respond, which prevents you from investing in the more expensive traditional prototypes and processes. Brilliant. Thank you. That's exactly what I was looking for is the business case, not just this is another cool idea, but 
there's a strong case for why it works, how it works. And I agree, fail fast sounds way different than learn fast. Mm -hmm. And being a voracious learner and this idea that the leader is a scientist committed to learning. Exactly. Not not committed to being right. Um, So then the other question is, tell me a little bit more about what are there like a hundred people on a team? Is it uh, is there a small group, an in group, and a, then an extended group? I'm thinking, how would I manage all of the complex voices and then uh, synthesize and get everyone to agree on things? Well, to part of your question, I want to say yes to all of the above. There are times when you have a very small team; it can be five people, can be fewer people, and then there are times when you open it up to input from the users, maybe at a prototyping stage. So, people think and they get nervous; it's going to be a big free for all, right? Oh my God, I have to, I have to check with a hundred people every time I want to move something. Uh, it's not like that at all. There's a rhythm to the process. You know, the the the, the part that um, is easy to forget with design is that design is, above all, a method for making stuff and getting through stuff, right? It could be design of a theatrical production, design of a, you know, choreography, whatever it is. A huge part of design is who needs to be involved when, when does this have to happen? There's a there's a really comforting process, and and that's a part of this social design process. So it's it's not scary, right? It takes again, it takes the the anxiety out of these things because there's a a plan that's easy to follow. The, there are decision makers. So typically, you form a key team uh, of the people who are going to own the project. Uh, at whatever level, and and we say, and that comes from scoping the project, right, and looking at who are all the stakeholders, who needs to be involved in this because we need to have their contribution, and sometimes you say, well, who could say no to this, right, who do I want to have skin in this game because they could they could kill it, um, so you look at, we I always say, as as little as possible and as much as necessary on that team, and then there's a process for deciding who needs to see it way in whose whose opinions need to are needed to refine it or to make sure that it's on on track and so it it changes in size and and um over the course of the project again very helpful answer because i've been on projects where there was no steering committee and that's a fail or where the steering committee was everyone and their grandmother and that's a fail so it sounds like it's it is scoped so that you have the right people at each stage of the process but everyone isn't involved in everything. Correct. And I can give you an example that's um I mentioned before this organization uh, Community Solutions is an organization founded by an extraordinary woman named Roseanne Hegarty. They have a project called Built for Zero that is working in 70-odd communities across the country. And they have found a process for helping these communities get to zero veterans and chronic homelessness. So we know what a big issue this is now, right? Um, Especially in Silicon Valley where people are seeing um, more homeless more homeless individuals than ever before and nobody knows what to do about it. The, the way that Built for Zero works is to help 
these communities, and communities are defined as a continuum of care by HUD, the way things are districts. So a community could be all of Atlanta, or it could be a couple of counties in Alabama. But the the organization teaches people how to put a functional team together, right? Who needs to be on it? They teach them how to assign accountability or, or f- um, ways for people to, to be accountable. They teach them how to have a meeting. They teach them how to, how to use data and how to develop ideas. Um, and so, again, this process that I'm talking about for what comes next and then what happens after that and how do you do this is, is very much a, a part of the process. Again, thank you. It's really helpful to hear examples of how you're using it and and to address the the scale of the issues and the who's involved and how it plays. So let's move to the next question. In the intergalactic design guide, you suggest that plans don't work, only ex- innovation and experimentation does. How can a business put a system into place where innovation and creativity is encouraged to solve problems when they're still concurrently working in in many cases, a traditional construct of uh, delivering in the way they have done in the past? Yeah, well, that's an interesting question. And I think the the answer is that, that you experiment with two, right? There are, there, it is possible to balance the responsibilities of being uh, accountable to shareholders or to, um, you know, to the demands of business and still leave room for this kind of experimentation and innovation. And it doesn't mean that there aren't metrics in this process because this is the way to develop new ideas. It's not the way to manufacture. It's not the way to to do accounting, to financial accounting, right? So those things aren't going away. But one of the things that I have been struck by is uh, there's a wonderful writer named Robert Fritz who wrote a book called Creating. And in it, he talks about the fact that problem solving is different from creating. Problem solving is making something go away that we don't want. And when we solve problems, we tend to sort of swirl around the same level of thinking, you know, fixated on that problem. Creating is imagining an altogether new thing or state and then inventing ways to get there. And I think in any organization, the, both of those things need to be recognized and you have to make room for creating. It doesn't mean that the rest of it, you know, it's not sort of this crazy people smoking dope and coming up with ideas all day long. <laughs> um, not that there's anything wrong with that. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's, it's that there's, there's a very, there's a rigorous um, process to this. It's just, it's a different process that needs to be recognized as necessary to develop a higher level and a different level of thinking. I love the Robert Fritz book. I read that Probably twenty or thirty years ago, and and the idea that in an organization we can both run our business and in parallel either have separate people or the same people creating concurrently. Mm-hmm. 
So let's go on break now. And for our listeners, as we uh, step into break, other than listening to the um, announcements in the middle, suggest that you reflect on our, how, how does your organization create? Do you have people who are designated in those roles? Does everyone do it or does no one do it? And Cheryl and I will be back momentarily. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. The Innovative Leadership Institute is your trusted partner to create perpetual innovation and evolution in your leadership and organization. Are you ready to innovate and evolve? Since its inception, the Innovative Leadership Institute has been dedicated to helping leaders evolve their leadership mindset and skills and create organizations that can continually innovate to achieve results in a highly competitive and rapidly changing environment. We help leaders, management teams, and organizations identify and create the capacity to update how they lead, identify, and implement transformative solutions necessary to meet their mission and create strategic advantage. The Innovative Leadership Institute offers proven results backed by leading-edge research and a global network of accomplished consultants and thought leaders. Visit InnovativeLeadershipInstitute.com. Maureen and her associates are ready to discuss your needs and tailor a solution to meet your goals. Move forward with the Innovative Leadership Institute. Visit InnovativeLeadershipInstitute.com today. How is your work-life balance? In most businesses, no matter where you are positioned, there is always room for improvement. If you're an executive, learn insight about your business. Are you an employee? Learn how to better work with your team. Even if you're not in business, you can learn where your strengths and weaknesses can be played to their best potential. The Work-Life Balance with host Rick Morris can be heard live every Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You are listening to Innovative Leadership, co-creating our future. To reach Maureen Metcalf or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to info at InnovativeLeadershipInstitute.com. Now, back to this week's program. Welcome back. You're talking to Maureen Metcalf and Cheryl Heller, and we're talking about the intergalactic intergalactic design guide. So during break, Cheryl and I were talking about the path of least resistance for managers written by Robert Fritz. Cheryl, can you tell our listeners a little bit more about the conversation? Sure. I, I We were having a little Robert Fritz fan club moment. And, and part of the reason is he's brilliant at describing the creative process in ways that make it accessible. His second book, which is called The Path of Least Resistance for Managers, as Maureen said, is, I think, on point for your last question, which, which was, what do you do if you're a business and you want to inject creativity, but but you have obligations and you have a traditional way of working? 
In describing the creative process, Fritz says you you set the vision for where you want to go and you're constantly measuring current reality. And it's that tension that keeps you moving in the same direction. So for companies, you do the same thing. You set an audacious goal, one that's exciting to everybody, and then you, you continually monitor in as objective a way as possible where you are and the distance you have between that goal. And it just automatically helps departments and 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 people who didn't work together to fall in line in the creation of this new vision and there's something beautiful about his his work that talks about leveraging our unconscious brain so it's that structural tension between where we are and where we want to be that our brain by the way it's constructed wants to close that gap and in ways that we don't imagine, we start to find solutions just by the process of creating the current and, and future state. Lovely. Very well put. So, Cheryl, you have experience working with organizations for affecting social change. What is social change and how does social design help generate this change? And give us some examples. Well, I think I'll start with an example and hopefully all the information will be in there. One of my favorite examples is a man named Jeffrey Brown who has built a an empire of grocery stores in Philadelphia but he is succeeding in food deserts and in the poorest neighborhoods of Philadelphia in doing that he will say that he's in the grocery business because he wants to end poverty and that's a perfect example of the way this is done. So that's social innovation. When you have a business or you have an enterprise that brings equality and health and justice to people in society. So Jeffrey does this by continually conferring with the people in the neighborhoods where he works. He will, when he's thinking about starting something new, you know, he will do something that's big in a neighborhood, you know, like he didn't want to sell fried chicken. So he wanted to, wanted to know if um, grilled chicken could be a substitute because he's trying to get people to eat healthier food. So he goes and talks to people and they tell him about whether they'll eat that. He was having a meeting and in a neighborhood and this woman said, you know, a lot of people who live here can't get jobs because they've been in prison. And as long as they can't get jobs, they're never going to buy from your store. So why don't you figure out a way to fix that? And Jeffrey Brown always says, well, that sounded like a problem that could be solved. And so he started a nonprofit that's associated with Brown Superstores that trains people who have been in prison and guarantees them jobs in his grocery stores. And so now a third of his workforce is made up of people from the neighborhood um, who have a chance and who are so committed to this opportunity and to Jeffrey's business that it's really special workforce. And that kind of that kind of vision that includes a purpose, that kind of collaborative process, he's constantly uh, experimenting with things. He experiments with, well, if you because he he teaches people how to read food labels so that they know what's healthy. He teaches, he has nutrition classes in the store. He has healthcare centers in the store. He's always trying new ideas to see what's going to make the people in his neighborhood um, and his customers healthier and safer and, and um, to give them better lives. It sounds like a brilliant example. And my assumption is that he is also profitable. 
he is profitable and it's not easy to do in the grocery business anyway, right? It's a Mm -hmm. very small margin business and it's a very difficult kind of business to run. He's had to be very creative about how he does that because he's essentially selling food to people who can't afford to pay the prices he needs to make. But he's gotten very creative with um, government loans. He's been innovative with um, uh, grants from the government for businesses that are going into new neighborhoods like this. And, And he's... You know, in a in an industry where you don't think of experimentation, you don't think of creativity. Jeffrey Brown really is proving that that allows you to do things that that nobody else thinks is possible. I love the idea that we're innovating out of some of our most intractable social issues. Yes. Well, it's the only it's the only option we have, right? It is. So what are some obstacles facing organizations trying to adopt the principles of social design? I think it's the things that we've talked about already. It's the old habits. It's the fear of changing. It's the fear of losing, you know, I'm an expert at this and I've got my silo and I've got the people who report to me and I don't want to mess with that. It is the comfort um, you know, we had a wonderful speaker here uh, the other night at the program, uh, uh, Hala Thomasdottir, who was, among other many extraordinary things, ran for president in Iceland. You know, but she mm-hmm. talk she talks about the 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 tyranny of the expected and the way that things are always done, and it's very difficult to break out of that, right? It's, it's difficult to be bold. It's difficult to try new things. It's not always comfortable. And we have to leave what we now know is an illusion of, of safety. And mm-hmm. these times that we're living in require us to think differently and to be bold about leading the kinds of, of change that, that we need to see right now. You know, I think something you just said strikes me as fundamentally important. It's the illusion of safety. Our old way of doing things got us here. And and for that, I think most of us are deeply grateful. But they won't solve the problems that that have emerged out of our conditions in the world right now. We need new thinking, and that illusion of safety is just that. And if we stay in that illusion we won't be able to solve the problems. Absolutely. And and social design offers a very safe way to play with change. And I use the word play intentionally. It's a very easy way not to risk the whole enterprise, just to try a new way of thinking to see if ideas that, that are... are um, exciting and relevant emerge from it there's 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 very little cost to trying this and it sounds like following well you say there's no plan there's a plan to implement the process so there is a structure yeah, there's it's, it's there not a no, free-for-all yeah, exactly there are no predictive plans right there are no mm-hmm. you know it's like lean the lean startup method in business right it used to be to rigor that that you do a three-year business plan or a five-year plan and and you would say well you know we're going to be profitable in this month and this is how many customers we'll have and this is what the product line will look like right i mean we now know 
that that didn't that wasn't important that wasn't what people should have been thinking about and it wasn't actually predictive and so the lean startup method is you know um, minimum viable product get out there and try it see what happens and then make the next step based on what you did there's a real rigor to that and there's a skill to it and a talent and and the analysis and the that the you know the other aspects of business certainly don't go away but it's a different way of thinking about how you innovate and how you make businesses and and products and systems that are relevant to people continually not just as you said in the beginning, not just at one time. And we live by this idea of minimum viable product. We are launching new things all the time in in the space of how do we help leaders innovate. Exactly. Because otherwise it wouldn't be called innovative. Um, it wouldn't be accurately called innovative. Okay, so what are your hopes for the future in regard to social design? You've recently published this book, and this is the beginning of a next phase of your journey. It is. There's another project that I'm involved in that I'm very excited about. We began, uh, some colleagues and I began to try to measure the impact of social design. And we picked human health because we needed to put some, put some scoping around it so that uh, people would know uh, whether it was relevant to them. So I'm involved in a project funded by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation looking at how people are measuring the difference design make that design makes. And my hope is that this makes it easier, more acceptable, uh, more logical for people to try this different way of thinking and working together. And that seems like it has lots of tentacles. So can you give a couple examples? Sure. Well, we're looking at, I'll, I'll give you a couple of examples of the kinds of organizations we're looking at, and then I'll tell you one of the not surprising things, but surprising things we found. There is a, a group of policemen in Springfield, Massachusetts, that is using what is essentially a social design process on uh, addressing drug violence and gang violence in what was a very... Um, some very rough neighborhoods. It's counterinsurgency technique that they learned in Iraq and Afghanistan. They're special forces guys. They've come back. And the concept is that instead of arresting the bad guys uh, or girls, they strengthen the community. They build trust in the community and they, they help people build their confidence again so that the community has a sense of itself and, and, and feels the optimism and the possibility of changing changing the nature of the the town. There's another organization, uh, the New York City Office um, of Economic Opportunities has created a design innovation lab in the middle of the government. They are, again, they're not looking to find the perfect services for all the, the residents who need help. They're teaching the agencies, all the government agencies to use social design to develop more relevant and accessible services for the people who need them. So uh, that's, we're looking across a broad range from architecture to, you know, um, contraceptive education for teenage girls in Africa. The thing that, that is the big takeaway that, as I say, is, is, not, it's like a big duh, is that 
the real difference that this kind of social design makes is that it changes the people who practice it. So if you pull together a cross-disciplinary team, you're putting people together who haven't worked bef- together before. They learn from each other. They, they have different experiences. If you teach people how to reframe problems and prototype and experiment and come up with multiple ideas, then they know how to do that and they take that to the next project. Thank you. I really appreciate that distinction. So it's, it is several different elements that it is the, the structure of social design. It's the idea that there is a process that I learn as I go. I do small experiments. I bring all of the constituents together. And obviously, I'm not going to summarize your body of work in a minute. Um, but those are some of the key elements. And I really love the idea that by being involved in this process, that by its nature, I have learned and changed and will be more effective irrespective of what happens with the project. Exactly. I have these skills. I know how to communicate. I know how to collaborate. I know how to develop ideas. I know how to identify a need and act on addressing it. So Cheryl, where will people find your book? I'm assuming the standard Amazon answer, but any anything else, a website or anything that you can steer people to? Sure. Um, it is on the, the website of Island Press, which is my publisher, and um, bookstores in various parts of the country. And as you say, inevitably Amazon. Thank you. So for our listeners, thank you so much for joining Cheryl and I today. And I trust that you learned something that you can apply and and consider where you are using design thinking and the elements of design thinking in your work and where you might add them in more, especially if you read and learn about this process, because it sounds like it is one of the fundamental processes to help us as a society solve some of the problems we're facing. We would love to hear your feedback. Either email me at info at innovateleader.com or connect with us on Facebook at the Innovative Leadership Institute. Thank you, and we look forward to having you join us again next week. Thank you again for joining us this week. Please tune in for another edition of Innovating Leadership, co-creating our future with Maureen Metcalf, next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We hope you'll join us then and have a great week.